Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Week 14, the final regular season week of Pac-12 football has wrapped up. And we have all the action to break down for you here on another edition of Believe in the Pac-12 on the Believe Podcast Network. Welcome, everybody. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Ryan, how was your Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving was wonderful. I don't know if you know this out there, people, but I went 5-1 and one this week. Wow. And, you know, I, I'm kind of, you know, it's kind of sullied by the fact that I had to pick Washington State, right? Because I was... I, I did feel like it was going to be different, but like if I was coming in as a a true gambler or a true guy that that was picking things, I, I would I would assume after all the history that Washington wins that football game. So I easily could have gone six and zero this week. I'm 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 okay being five and one, knowing that I picked my Cougars, who we're going to get to that. I assume absolutely laid another giant egg. Thanksgiving was good. You were in Dallas and you went five and one. That all turns out to be a pretty nice weekend if you're Ryan Leaf. Friday, November 29th, the first game of week 14, the aforementioned Washington State Cougars lose in the Apple Cup to Washington 31 to 13. I had the pleasure actually of calling a championship game that Anthony Gordon, alma mater, Terra Nova High School up north, uh, was playing in. They really could have used him in that game because they ran the ball uh, 42 times and unfortunately lost just like the Cougars did. You said, Ryan, that you picked Washington State. Now, when you look at that game and you were saying, okay, obviously I'm going to pick Washington State, I'm an alum. If they win, it's a big win for the program, for the Apple Cup, for the you know the season. Were there Was there a rationale going into the, the decision to pick them where you said, okay, I actually can see this team winning this game? Yeah, I mean, they've done it to me two years in a row, right? Uh, a year ago, I felt like, uh, they were in a situation where Gardner Minshew and the offense was different. They just were better. You know, they beaten physical teams. What the bottom line is, is, is Washington and Jimmy Lake have a schematic advantage with what they do since Mike Leach and, and the, the Washington State Cougars don't change. They don't change. You're watching the last few drives of that football game. They didn't change one thing. I would have been okay if he went in and said, hey, we're going to go too tight. I'm going to give Max Borgie it 60 times instead of throwing it 60 times. And if they lost, then I could go, okay, at least you tried something different. Your way does not work against Washington. It hasn't for seven years. And it's embarrassing. And that played out in real form on Friday once again. They do a tremendous job of staying committed to their drops. Uh, they have great gap integrity on defense. Let's everything come in before in front of them, and then they rally and make good, strong tackles. That's what a Jimmy Lake coach team does. There were no explosive plays. You got Gordon to turn it over a few times. I mean, it was it was bad, and they were able to pressure him at time to time with three guys or four guys. Not, not all day, but, I mean, they still got five or six sacks, and, and that's the way it works. And it's just I just want to see a different approach from Mike Leach. I think he's the right guy for the job. I mean, what they've been able to do in the last five years is exceptional. But if you continue losing to Washington, there's going to be a problem. You've got to have a different kind of emphasis for that game. It may be a completely different-looking blueprint to what you do, but that's, that's his blueprint. He just does the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again, and it's worked, just not in the Apple Cup. So they're that for a reason. There's a, you know, when you go in and play Navy or you go play Air Force, they run a different offense. You've got to play something different defensively. It's a different philosophy. When you're going against Washington, they do something different defensively. You have to do something different offensively. That's why it's been so frustrating 
for me as an alumni and a fan. Do you like Mike Leach's approach to the media? I mean... Or are you okay with it? Let me rephrase that. Are you okay I with don't, it? I don't necessarily like some of his... Some of his terminology he's used over his verbiage about his kids, lazy, fat, you know, that, that stuff for me is, is bothersome. Now, now, soft, I'm okay with, right? You know, entitled, those things are real. So I'm okay with that. I think, I think that, that it takes away from his accountability sometimes. But also, right after a football game, an emotional football game, and being shown the mirror once again that you didn't live up to expectations, it's hard in the moment not to react emotionally. So I, I, I tend to take a step back. Uh, I was talking to a friend on Saturday and, or on Friday and kind of wanted to get over-emotional about it. I said, I'm going to take a step back, and on Monday from about 30,000 feet, I'm going to take a look, you know. And it is what it is. He's got to change uh, his scheme and his identity versus Washington. Other than that, he, can, he just needs to continue doing what he's doing because he's been successful. Um, you know, no, he doesn't like to lose just like no one else likes to lose, right? Six and six for Washington State. They are bowl eligible. I think on our Thursday podcast – Maybe we'll talk about where we think some of these teams may end up. Washington ends at 7-5, and 31-13 victory in the Apple Cup on Friday. Moving over to Saturday. Not only did Utah cover the spread, but they buried Colorado, just like you said. 45-15, the case has been made. We'll see where they're ranked, but with the Alabama loss, I mean, they have to be four, right? Well, they're not going to move them past Georgia. You don't think so? Not that they're there already, oh. you know. If, if Georgia hadn't been there at four, um, I, I could see it happening. I, the thing about it all is I've always had them at four, so there is no movement for me to, to put down, you know. It, it is what it is. So I suspect the committee's going to have Georgia at four, but it doesn't matter, right? Because if they lose, they're out of the conversation anyway. If they win, then most likely Utah's out anyway, and LSU sneaks in with that resume. Uh, as two SEC teams. How funny would it be at, at the beginning of the year that, you, that you, if I told you there's going to be two SEC teams in the conference or in the college football playoff and neither are going to be Alabama. And so it, I'm, I'm okay. I've been okay with them putting Georgia there. I think it's absurd that they've continued to do it. It shows to me that the committee, you know, they have a decent resume, but that loss is just blatantly glaring and, and like shining in people's faces for me. So I, I don't mind that they're there because that's going to take care of themselves. Then the discussion happens. What happens? Does does Utah get in, or does the winner of, of Baylor Oklahoma get in? And the committee has been kind of propping up the Big Twelve the last few weeks. I mean, they've made gigantic jumps. But what has been the standard is Utah has been thoroughly ahead of them for the whole time. Now it's not Utah's fault they can't go any further in the committee's eyes, or they would. But what they put on the football field, because I think you'd be splitting hairs in terms of the resume. But what Utah has put on the football field in, in the Pac-12 wins this year, conference wins for Utah this year, they've won by an average of 29.1 points a game. That's destroying their opponents. Tyler Huntley, 14 for 17, 165, two touchdowns. Zach Moss, another nice game, 88 yards and a touchdown as well. So Huntley, obviously, since October 1st, is number two in the nation in QBR behind Trevor Lawrence. This offense is consistent as they come. This defense is taut. The front seven is intense. I mean, this team does have the makings of competing with Ohio State, Clemson. I don't know. Okay, Ohio State, I'm not sure, but Clemson and LSU at least. It's going to be intriguing. And and who says that they're going to beat Oregon anyways in the Pac-12 championship? We'll get that on Thursday. Do you think they have the Rose Bowl locked up no matter what? Unless they fall outside of USC, 
That's the only way it happens. They take the top-ranked conference team at that point. Right. So there's no other teams ranked other than USC at 22 this week. They may jump up to 21, not playing or something like that. I mean, that would be a significant drop. We'll see where Oregon is this week. I suspect they're going to be around, oh, you know, they're 14 last week. You had Michigan lose. You had Minnesota lose. You know, you had Alabama lose. I have Oregon at 10 this week. I would say 10 as well. But it, they could be anywhere from 12. They're not going to drop from 12 to out of the rankings or behind USC. I, the most ironic thing is if Clay Helton were to be let go of his job this week and then all of a sudden USC is the team representing in the Rose Bowl. And uh, that's why I think we probably won't hear anything once again until this game and the rankings, final rankings come out uh, because all that's still in play. But Oregon can lose this football game and lose it badly and still be the Rose Bowl recipient. And it would be a pretty good year for Justin Herbert and that team to be Rose Bowl bound. Now, if Utah weren't to get into the college football playoff, they most likely would be in a game. In that They would be in that game versus probably a Wisconsin team that's going to lose to Ohio State this week. So that that all is in front of us. Utah, I think, is the most deserving. I think the resume is as is, is close as, as the other teams are vying for. What happened this week in Alabama – They've removed their – they just removed them from the equation. We now know that a conference champion for that four spots going to get in unless Georgia upsets LSU. I want to talk about that really quickly before we get into the USCPR crisis uh, that Sports Illustrated put out yesterday. You mentioned that obviously Alabama not in. I, was, I got a text from a friend yesterday saying it's crazy that this is the first college football playoff without Alabama. But it seems a little bit refreshing, right? Do you think that we need to hit the reset button on this right now? Maybe not this year, obviously, but you said you made the case. Five power, five teams, all who probably could make the case for a spot uh, in in a, a playoff scenario. And, of course, only four teams get in. But this seems like a step in the right direction now that Alabama is not in the college football playoff, that there is a little bit more fluidity and equity to this process, but there still needs something more to be done. Uh, maybe. I mean, I just don't like the fact that you're talking about seven individuals ultimately that make the decision. I don't like the fact that certain people are recused when you're talking about six teams in the pool. I think that's something that can change. I mean, Rob Mullen's having to leave the room for five other teams in the process from a guy that you've painted as the chairman who's got a lot of insight. Now he's he's not he's not even adding into the five other teams in that pool. I mean, that's I think that's ludicrous, and I think that should change. That's sort of like if the Security Council representative from the United States had to leave the room when the Security Council was talking about matters that regarded the United States. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's a dramatic leap there, but, <laughs> I, but I, I get your point. I, I also just – I don't like – you know, I, I was a guy that thought four teams were elite, and, and I love how people are going to, like, you're getting your playoff. Last week was a playoff for Baylor. Last week was a playoff for Oklahoma. I'm like, it's not the, – the, every game's a playoff then. Yeah, the whole season's a playoff then. I get it. And you're like, no, it's not. They could lose a game. And I'm like, okay, well, after you lose a game, every game's a playoff from that point on. I understand that you take some away, but you're not. T- I'm not talking about expanding it to 16 teams. I'm talking about expanding it to six, where you're talking about, you know, you know, the top two teams in the country getting buys, and then you got at least every Power Five conference represented and possibly a group of five or at least a, a representative. You probably could have, you know, Georgia could get in this year. Or a, a, or a Penn State or something like that uh, in that scenario. So I'm not I'm not. That's the biggest takeaway I had was that they probably need to expand. And um, and I was a four guy. I was a guy thinking that was elite. 
It was special, and it is. Six wouldn't make it less elite and less special. What do you think of the idea of, idea of having a group of five play-in game for a final spot in the college football playoff? You know, I'm, I'm good for the group of five having their own separate anything, right? Uh, it, you know, poll, all of it. I just, you know, I put them in my top 25 because I think that, you know, on any given Saturday, yeah, they could win. But you put them in a conference as tough as the Power Five conferences. They're going to be middle of the road, uh, maybe more in the, the higher end. But it, it's much more difficult so that, that they had their own. I wouldn't mind seeing a, a Memphis uh, – their, their own little round robin. I'd, I'd love to see Memphis, App State, Boise, you know, Cincy kind of kind of matchup there, those top four teams. Or you take the top two ranked group of five, which right. is, is going to probably be uh, Memphis and App State and play those two, and the winner gets into the college football play. That'd be kind of – I think that would be pretty interesting. I, I, I really do. But, I mean, there's so many fun things you could do with it. You, then you get, you're talking about logistics and kids and injuries and school and – all the stuff that goes into it, um, you know, what, what what we would like, which would make us happy, isn't necessarily how things best work logistically for the NCAA or for anybody out there. Back to the Pac-12, as this is Believe in the Pac-12 on the Believe Podcast Network. Oregon up over Oregon State 24-10. Um, I was really happy to see Tristan Jebbia out there, Calabasas alum out here in Southern California. Um I, I don't have much to say about this game. Oregon won by 14. They wasn't convincing at all, but it was a Civil War win, and I think that the Pac-12 championship will speak for itself with this team. Unless you have anything else to add, we can move on. Well, I mean, I do think this, right? There, it tells you a lot about the young kids. They just got beat. You know, they lost their chance at the college football playoff opportunity. You know, how do you bounce back? There's got to be a hangover. Also, the game was meaningless. It didn't matter if they won or lost that football game. It was more meaningful to Oregon State because if they won, they were they were bowl eligible, and to get ready for that game, I'm sure the coaches were ready. But I don't, I can't be honest to tell you that that the the players, 18 to 22 year old kids, were were rip roaring ready to play that football game. But they found a way to get it done, and that's why, of course, I had Oregon State plus the 19 points because I just didn't think it was going to be uh, a blowout in this instance, and it surely wasn't. And I talked to a few guys today and over the weekend and. You know, people were pretty happy with, with with the Civil War win, but there was one takeaway that Justin Herbert seemed really down. And and you'd think that they just, you know, won again at home, they beat their rival, and now they were going to play for the Pac-12 championship. But there's something to be said for playing your final game in a home stadium that you grew up in the shadow of and something you came back to do. And I don't think he was disappointed in how they played. I don't think he was disappointed in how the season was. I think he was disappointed and was taking into consideration and under and accepting that, uh, this was my final game in Austin Stadium. What was it like for you playing your final game? Well, I mean, it was – I knew ahead of time, right? I knew that I was going to leave and go pro. So my last game was against Stanford at home. And uh, so I knew it. It was senior day. I went out and was at the front of the line with the seniors. I didn't interact or partake in it, but I was out there to celebrate with them. And then sure enough, the, the fans carried me off the field. Um, you know, I pulled up the Heisman sign in front of the Stanford bench. <laughs> I mean, it was – a it was a very memorable day, but there was a point at the end of the night, even though I knew we had another game to win the Pac-12 championship, Pac-10 championship at the time, there was time I had to take and reflect because I was sad. I was sad I was never going to be able to walk into Martin Stadium again, and I bet you that's kind of what, what Justin Herbert was feeling, um, you know, having wanted to do this for his whole career, and, and now it was all done. Justin Herbert is Sheldon High School alum, which is the power 
uh, dominant blue blood high school out of Eugene, Oregon. They typically finished top three or top four in the state, and he really didn't didn't care about going to any other school. It was Oregon or bust for him. Went to Oregon and uh, and had a great career there. Obviously not over, but in in the shadows of Austin, as you said, in the friendly confines of good old Austin Stadium, Justin Herbert will no longer be a quarterback for the Oregon Ducks. 24-10 that final. Stanford and Notre Dame. This was not a game that any of us thought Stanford had a chance in. They were up 10-7 after the first quarter, and then Ian Book and that Notre Dame defense went to work and ended up pulling it out 45-24. Though Davis Mills, 28 for 46, 276, two touchdowns. What's the silver lining here for Stanford? They start the season ranked. They are blown out by UCF on the road. They lose uh, a handful of offensive linemen and KJ Costello, and it's sort of matriculated into this this four and, and eight season they have the Washington win on the road but other than that what do you reconcile if you're a Stanford Cardinal from it, it's the season? tough what you, what you probably can is is that that they were decimated by injuries right and there was just nothing you could do about it uh, they got a lot of play for young guys who are gonna have some experience next year that could be something and we'll see how they deal with the diversity you know they had a, a, a somewhat down year a year ago and then this year dropped completely uh, to the very bottom I have them Number 10 in my final Pac-12 power rankings heading into the Pac-12 championship, uh, only in front of Arizona and UCLA. So, you know, it's, it's been a down year. Let's see how they deal with that adversity. Uh, Notre Dame came in and, and, you know, there was a lot of points, 16.5 points. They hung with them for a little bit, but then Notre Dame and Brian Kelly uh, went away on the road and, and got something done they hadn't got done in a long time against Stanford. The Arizona games, Arizona State hosting Arizona 24-14. By the way, did you hear that Hugh Jackman, Jackson excuse me, uh, is the front runner for offensive coordinator at Arizona State? Well, that's Marvin Lewis's influence, right? As soon as Hugh Jackson got fired from Cleveland, where was Hugh Jackson? He was on the sideline for Cincinnati. So they have a really tight, close relationship. He feels very confident in what, what Hugh Jackson does, and it shows where Herm Edwards is at, right? Rob Likens did a tremendous job offensively with a – you know, fr- freshman quarterback thought that was really well done this year, but he also wasn't his guy. You know, it was a holdover from Todd Graham's system, and he wants to go his own way and put a stamp on it. And I'm sure Marvin Lewis had had some impact on that in his ear. And you know, back to back seven and five seasons for Arizona State, uh, same record as Todd Graham's final year there when they were going to make the big switch. People believe there's a trajectory, a, a positive trajectory with this football team. Hasn't translated into wins necessarily. But people believe. Let's see what kind of jump they make offensively in the second year of Jaden Daniels. Uh, we'll see what they do in the bowl game with, a fifth, with 15 extra practices. Um, we'll see how it plays out. But at some point, they're going to have to translate to wins and not just be middle of the road because Ray Anderson said when the hire happened, we're going to be a perennial fi- top-ranked 15 team here. And they have not been in that position. Instead, more of middle of the road, 7-5 and five final records at the end of the seasons. Was Eno Benjamin the best running back in the Pac-12 this season? You know, he was probably close. Joshua Kelly was pretty darn good. Um, Zach Chris, Moss. Christopher Brown really came on strong for that Cal team. The fact that they got to seven wins, we'll get to that a little bit later. But Zach Moss, you know, Zach Moss is probably the best running back in the league. Um, you know, just because of the fact that they were able to win and do the things that he was able to do. And he's if people if people gave you a chance to you know here take one of these running backs. Uh, put them on your team as you're running back going into the college football playoff scenario. Who do you take? And I'm sure most people are going to take Zach Moss. Arizona State won 24-14. You mentioned 7-5. and five. We'll see uh, where they get placed, like I alluded to earlier. Maybe we'll go over where we think some of these teams might get placed um, in on Thursday's Potter early next week as well. 
Cal-UCLA, the final game before we get to USC's PR crisis. So U- UCLA has jumped all over your power rankings here in the Pac-12. Obviously, they dropped the last two games. USC last week here to Cal. They lose 28-18 at home to end their season. 4-8, and eight, another disappointing season for this Chip Kelly-run squad. Cal able to salvage the injuries, able to salvage a couple of bad losses, finish 7-5, and 4-5 and five in the conference. But again, bowl eligible. Uh, Wilcox got his extension. Was this a successful season for the Cal Bears, given the circumstances? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, 7-5 and five, when they lost the most important player on offense from. They were not able to p- score a point. Now, I would say you could look at it as like a complete disappointment, too, in the fact they've been able to waste that defense, right? If they could have had Chase Garbers the entire season, you know, maybe he is the reason they are 10-2 and two and, and fighting for the North title. They very well could have competed in it, and they're going to finish second in the North. And that's amazing with the point where they could not score a point, to be honest with you. So, uh, you know, really, really liked how that, that worked for them. 7-5 um, and five is a good deal. They could end up in the same bowl as they were last year. But I thought it was a huge, huge season, a huge win for that program, um, having to deal with all those injuries, in particular at the quarterback position. UCLA. Tough season. Prior to the season, I was on the give Chip Kelly some time. Finally, Chip Kelly run team. It's young. They're recruiting finally. UCLA will be back to its old self in a couple of years. But it seems like the the temperament with this team amongst fans, amongst media members, amongst boosters and alumni is becoming shorter and shorter. What do you think about the outlook for UCLA given the last two, even three seasons for this football team? I mean, it's 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 tough. Right, I mean, if it weren't for that absolutely mon- momentous collapse by Washington State, they're three and nine once again. I had them as three and nine going into the season, and that win cost me the the right prediction. But still, four and eight, you know, not good. And a lot of us had them, you know, when they were going into Utah with a chance to still be in the South conversation as like an improved team. But at the end of the year, you're like, nah, you know, they should beat Cal at home. That's the way people th- should think to end the season. But no, they don't get it done. Um, seven wins, 7-17 seven and 17 in his first two years at UCLA. Uh, that's not what the boosters expected. They expected more, but what Dan Mullins brought to the table in the East. Uh, they've had to go up against Georgia. You know, UCLA should be competing with USC's and the likes of Utah's now, and they're not doing it. They're just, they're not doing it. And so that fan base is, uh, whether there's much of a fan base, but that administrationally, is going to be after him. Uh, if there's not a, a, a significant improvement, if he doesn't go, let's say, to double his wins, let's say to eight wins, go to a bowl game, compete for the South, uh, he could very well be out um, next year after next season. Talk about lack of fans. 30,000 fans in a place that sees 91,000 people. To put that in perspective, the, the CIF Southern Second Championship game at Cerritos College on Saturday, Saturday between Modern Day and St. John Bosco had 22,000 people. So there were only about... 9,000 more people at this UCLA game than there were for a high school football state champion or a regional championship. That can't happen. There needs to be, I mean, but it, but it starts with the success of the program, right? Well, I mean, it does. I mean, the, the high school programs are, are big, but it's, it's similar in Texas, right? I called the SMU game this weekend. The team won its 10th game of the season. They had done that since 1984. You got a small stadium right there in the hotbed of Dallas, yet wasn't very full. You know, it's 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 different. You got to have a a baseline of fans right there, and 
Do you think that being in Pasadena impacts? Oh, God, do I. I mean, it's one of my huge arguments that having your stadium 30 miles away, you're asking your fan base, your school, they need to have one on campus. But they never will because they live in the highest real estate valued place in Los Angeles, I think, Westwood and and in that that area. You know, it's, you know, Bel Air is where what it is. And they're not going to put a that much land. It's going to be too expensive to put a stadium and I, I, honest to God, would, would tell you to put a stadium about the size of 40,000 people there. Not huge, but and, and it would be full. I think that you would get 40,000 on campus there. People would go there on Saturday nights on campus, but it's just it will never happen. Especially for a public university in the state of California who does a terrible job uh, giving some leeway to their public universities, especially when it comes to athletics. So cap off the season, Cal beats UCLA 28 18. Let's move over. So USC obviously had the week off because they had that weird Notre Dame, not the weird, the rivalry game earlier in the season. Then they play UCLA a week before everybody else plays their rivalry games. And then a report comes out yesterday. And fake news finally caught up to the Pac-12. And a Sports Illustrated reporter named Adam Maya reported with sources, though he did not name his sources, that USC was going to dismiss Clay Helton in his fourth season. Now, as Sports Illustrated is seen as a reliable news source, as uh, they typically have, especially as a Trojan beat, they typically have the credibility with this information. Every other news outlet who did not do their due diligence, which was most of them, copied this report and reported in multitude that USC was canning Clay Helton. And then Bleacher Report did their due diligence and came out with a conflicting headlines report saying that this is not true and that Clay Helton's job is safe for now, and even some sources telling Bleacher Report that he could still be the USC head coach when this is all said and done. What does something like this do? What does a PR crisis like this do? Because somebody had to say something to initiate a report that Clay Helton was fired. Um, or does it not do it? Do we, just, do we say this was dumb? Let's move on and, and wait for an official decision to come out. Yeah, I think I'm, I think you know he ultimately may, may be right. He may have some sources that have some inside information. But I tell you what, the difference at the collegiate level than the pro level when coaches are concerned, a ton of people who write checks, there's only one person that writes check in the NFL, and that's the owner, right? You, you talk about a, a, a multitude of people who write checks in college who think they have more importance inside those programs or not, may have said something to somebody where the guy felt like he had more importance. Uh, you had multiple other outlets, Bruce Feldman and, and Ryan Abraham and guys like that who came back out and said, we're not hearing that. Our sources haven't said that. So they combated that. It may ultimately be the truth, you know, but like I talked to you about, they're still in the running for possibly the Rose Bowl. If Oregon gets absolutely blasted, Justin Herbert says, I'm not going to play in the bowl game. I mean, things like the absurdly right, happening, yeah. right? You know, they may go, okay, uh, let's put USC at 16 and Oregon at 17. And all of a sudden, USC is playing in the Rose Bowl. I don't believe that's going to happen. But um, it very well could as a possibility. So then maybe you keep that coach. Because how, how funny would it look to fire your head coach and now have an interim head coach coaching in the Rose Bowl? Where a guy that isn't good enough, but he got to the Rose Bowl. When all the recruits in the area would be coming to that game for the guy who, who recruited them who isn't even there anymore. Right. So... You know, I, I think with the with signing day, the early signing period that exists, we talked about this last week. I think it's going to be a problem to fire your head coach late in the year, but we've just seen SEC teams do it. Matt Luke at Ole Miss, you just saw it happen at Missouri. Coaches are getting fired late in the year. 
You know, I, I feel like it's going to have to be a trend where if you don't think it's going in the direction you think it is, you have to fire your coach midseason because you need time to get a guy in place. But what has happened here is I don't think Mike Bone has an idea of who he's got. There's two names that I think would be a big coup for USC if they've been in talks, if they've had conversations, all of that. Now, one of them I think easily could turn them down. These two names are Matt Campbell and Matt Rule. Matt Rule easily could be the Dallas Cowboys head coach next year. So if he has the ability to turn down the New York Giants a year ago and, and things like that, I don't know if USC is going to get a yes from him. Matt Campbell, he's turned down. His name was floated around U- Ohio State a year ago. He likes Ohio, Iowa State, but I think that could be a win for him. If they could get Matt Campbell and he could get that sewn up here in the next week or two, I do think that would be a coup for them to bring in. A young guy, established, willing to work hard, great coach, all of that. Um, I, I really think that's a possibility. I know Mike Norvell's name has been brought around as well. We'll see what that looks like. Um, but unless he has somebody in place where they can light it up next week, throw it up on the board and say, this is our guy, this is what we're doing, you got to stick with what you know. And it's it's Clay Helton who's probably had the best year uh, coaching in his career because of everything that came into it. The biggest red flag with all of this is that Mike Bone wasn't even in Southern California when this report was written. He was in Orlando watching USC take a third-place finish in the basketball tournament down there. So the fact that the athletic director wasn't even in the area when this report came out. That, for me, isn't that substantial. Oh, you don't think so? No, I think you, you, you've you had conversations with it before. Maybe finally it just starts breaking. News happens, you know. I mean, things happen where you're not where you're supposed to be. The one telling point for me was that, no, Clay Helton was in somebody's house recruiting. Yep. That, for me, is more important. He has not been told by any way, shape, or form – don't stop doing your job, right? Go get the guys you need to make your team better. So that, for me, is more substantial evidence that he's going to be around, that he's out doing his job, than anything else. A lot here to wrap around or to recap uh, what was a really interesting 14 weeks. Did you expect to be where we are right now with this Pac-12 football season? Yeah, I expected Washington to be in the north side of it. I expected Utah versus Washington. So we're, we're here. I also thought that, that Utah was a dark horse to crash the, the college football playoff party. Uh, I started saying that around week four. After they lost to USC, I kind of thought for a minute, but, and I was critical of them and how they went about that game. But guess what? They, just, they absolutely took a hard look in the mirror and went after it. And they've been really, really good. They've been the best football team, I think, in the country outside of Clemson, LSU, uh, and Ohio State since that loss. Uh, and, and if there is a, if you're looking for the best one-loss team in the country, it's the Utah Utes. You heard it here from Ryan. Let's get to your Pac-12 power rankings and then move on to Thursday. Uh, well, nothing much changed, but you know Utah stays at the top at one. I still think they're a double-digit favorite in this football game. Vegas came out at, at minus six for Utah. Oregon at two. USC at three. Arizona State at four after their Territorial Cup win. Cal jumps all the way up. They're going to end the year at five. UW at six. Washington State at seven. Oregon State at eight. I think a lot of people would have thought that wasn't the case when this year started, but Jonathan Smith has been tremendously good. They got him at eight. Uh, Colorado at nine. Stanford at ten. Arizona at 11. And UCLA pulling up the rear at 12. Those are Ryan's Pac-12 power rankings. We'll talk about the Pac-12 championship on Thursday. Maybe we'll go over um, some other Power 5 championships as well. Everything has implications uh, for Rose Bowl status, for, for the college football playoff status. 
um, and some other bowl games for these Pac-12 teams as well. But until Thursday's episode, for Ryan Leaf, my name is Jonathan Rifkin. Signing off, please rate, review, and subscribe across all listening platforms. This has been Believe in the Pac-12 on the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.